Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Each summer for a week at the Friends General Conference gathering, I spend time with a lot of amazing people, including activists of many stripes, one of which is the folks associated with Quaker Earth Care Witness. This year, I found Carol Barta among the presenters they were featuring in the Quaker Earth Care Witness Center. I took a permaculture workshop with Carol at the 2013 FGC gathering and was impressed by her knowledge and ability to convey information that could change our worldview of our connection to creation and food, particularly how we relate to what is usually called agriculture and sometimes called industrial agriculture. Certainly, organic farming has a significant mind share these days, but today we'll learn of something a step beyond that, something called social permaculture. I've got production help on today's program from Andrew Jansen as we meet with Carol Barta of the Kansas Permaculture Institute before a small audience at the Friends General Conference Gathering 2019. Thank you so very much, Carol, for joining me today for Spirit in Action. I'm really happy to be here, Mark. It's always exciting to talk about permaculture with everybody. And I got to see that firsthand because back in 2013, we were in Greeley, Colorado, and you were leading a workshop on permaculture that I attended, at least as best as I could. Yes. I, I only got to be there about half the time because this radio stuff that I do during the Friends General Conference gatherings takes a lot of my time as well. It was really fun to do that workshop, and a number of people have come up to me at this conference and told me about things that they went back and tried and implemented and how their gardens are doing and things. So, Or actually how they're not doing that, but they're, they move on to something else that they like doing. So it's good to have that feedback from the students that stuff worked. And you've had a lot of students over the past years, but unlike some people, I think, I'm not sure exactly when permaculture as a name originated. Certainly elements of it go way back, but you have about 10 years of experience? Somewhere right around there. I started my first class in 2009 and have been taking classes steadily. It's sort of like once you get started, you can't stop because it's so great. But I can tell you that the term permaculture was coined back in the early 70s by Bill Mollison and David Holmgren, the two original permaculturists in Australia. However, there were other people that were doing very similar things in other parts of the world. So the idea kind of sprang up on multiple continents all at the same time. And I've interviewed people about biodynamics and organic growing and various shades of portions of permaculture. What would you say is distinctive about permaculture in comparison to these other fields? Permaculture is a design system. And so rather than it being solely about what the inputs are in the garden or biodynamics has a lot of other pieces in it, they say that permaculture is the art of designing beneficial relationships. So the relationship between the plants and the soil, between people with each other, between people and their soil. And so it's really more of a systems thinking design process than solely a gardening protocol. 
And organic gardening, frequently they do look in the relationships, right? Yes. I'll plant this plant next to this plant, and I'll do this one, which will keep these pests out, you know, so my marigolds are here, and on and on. And so how would you draw yourself as distinctive from organic? Permaculturists garden in an organic fashion, but instead of using some of the inputs that, for example, I guess the best example of it is if you have slugs in your garden, We don't say you have a problem with slugs. We say you have a duck deficiency. Because if you have ducks in your overall system, they provide resources, one of which is that they eat slugs. And so they clean up those kinds of pests. So the idea is to design the entire system in a way that it enhances each element. And they work together to solve the problems. This is going to be a little bit of a weird example, but I realize, of course, that monoculture is antithetical to the concept of permaculture yes. because you don't have the multiple inputs. You're, you're trying to stand a stool on one leg in, mm-hmm. in monoculture. And I'm just thinking, what was missing in Ireland at the time of the potato famine? They weren't missing ducks. What were they missing? They were missing diversity. So in Peru, where they've never had a potato famine, they have, I don't know, something like 18 different varieties of potatoes. In Ireland, they were growing one variety. So when the blight attacked those potatoes, there weren't any that were blight-resistant. And that's one of the things that's clear in permaculture. If one strain of something doesn't work, you try something else that's more resistant or you plant things together that will give the resistance. I just read an article, and the research isn't complete yet, but they're finding that certain kinds of mustard greens, when you chop them down and make a slurry out of them, can be applied around the ground to get rid of fungus in areas that are prone to developing fungus because water sits. And that's a brilliant solution because many gardeners grow mustard greens for themselves, for their table, they're a great type of green, and to be able to use surplus of that to control other things in your garden is a wonderful way. And I didn't see in the article them define exactly which variety, but they're experimenting with it, and I think that that's great. You know, I just had the inspiration. I think if you were traveling on a spaceship, multi-generational travel to another star, I think you would have to be using permaculture because there is no outside, there is no away very clearly on a limited spaceship. And I would say we are doing that right here because we are traveling on a rather large rock through space and time with no there. Otherwise, we have what we have. Our resources are here, so we have to use them. And creating a permanent system by intentionally designing it is a much better way to go about it. I want to get into some of the specifics, uh, enough of them so that our listeners could feel like they could start cutting their teeth, they'd know where to go to get involved with this. You're living in Kansas, and you're part of Kansas Permaculture Institute, but they probably have an institute wherever they stand. That's true. So my question is, how did you get involved in permaculture? I mean, my understanding is that your day job is as a librarian. Was this an antidote to too many pieces of paper? <laughs> no. For many years, I've, I've gardened since I was a child. And I've kind of joked around with friends that I'm always looking for the unifying principle of everything. And someone posted a flyer in our food co-op about this class that was happening up in Omaha. 
So one of my friends and I decided we were going to just go up there and try it. And we were both just, I guess, smitten is the word. We just thought, this really makes sense. And so she's gone on to create a permaculture homestead in New Mexico, and I have one in Kansas. And of course, those are two very different terrains. The interesting thing is that the design principles work no matter where you are. So they're not specific to a region or a climate or whether an area is wet or dry. You can use these to advantage wherever you are. Were you already an organic gardener? Yes. And when you say a homestead, I guess this must be a permaculture term. You're defining your spaceship maybe to some degree Well, there are that there, you've got control over. Yes. I have a little over an acre of ground that I have planted some food forest, which are you know fruit trees and nut trees. I have chickens and ducks. We have plants for goats, but I'm waiting till I retire in about a year and a half for the goats because they're like toddlers and they need a lot of supervision. And I have bees. And that's what we've got so far there. But permaculture can be done... On a city lot, there's many urban permaculturists who have wonderful permaculture examples in their backyard and front yards, and it can be done on broad acre where you have 80, 100, 600 acres that you use in a way, you manage it in a way that is a system. We normally think of permaculture with respect to producing food for people, but there are examples like the Menominee tribe up in Wisconsin where they've got a sustainable forestry practice, they've got areas of land, even though it's not producing food, I mean, they do harvest trees periodically Mm -hmm. and so on, but selectively and with intention. Is that also permaculture? That is a, a part of permaculture. So one of the principles is to obtain a yield, and sometimes that yield is lumber, because you need that lumber to build a building or build furniture, whatever you're going to do with that. Basically, it's based on whether you've created that system to be self-sustaining or whether it has to have lots of inputs from outside. So for the most part, the forest doesn't require anybody to go out and fertilize it. It's a, a system unto itself, and it provides those resources to itself. If they're deciduous trees, they drop their leaves, the leaves break down, The insects come and chew them up, and they reabsorb minerals and and nutrients from that. Nobody has to go out and water the forest. You know, if we had to do that, we wouldn't have water on the planet at this point. So it's a system. It's created. The forest creates its own system. And when people go in there and manage, and usually if you have a woodlot, it's one of your outer zones. We call it the way we design permaculture, we set things up in zones so that things that you need to deal with regularly are closer and things that maybe maybe you're only going to go out once a year and harvest that lumber. So that's a ways out so you don't have to go. So that could be a zone four or zone five. There's one more way of, I guess, dealing with the earth that I'm particularly interested in. Good people who, for instance, they might have 40 acres They may just be tending it so it goes towards pre-agriculture, pre-invasive state of being. I guess you might say you're farming oxygen there, or maybe you're farming into the water cycle, etc. But that, I think, is not permaculture, or maybe I'm wrong. It's actually farming carbon. So what you're doing is getting that carbon back down into the soil when you have things that grow perennially. That is part of what permaculturists do. So it all depends on what your intention is with that 
piece of land. So is that piece of land there as a buffer to hold a space between maybe commercial agricultural land and land that you want to plant your organic vegetables on? That's one reason to plant an area of maybe native grasses, native flowers, and things like that to filter that from the outside. Another is that many of those kinds of installations bring in beneficial insects, so they serve as an insectary where those beneficial insects come in and they thrive there. Most permacultures plant something like that. A lot of us have milkweed growing because we're trying to you know, keep the butterfly population. We want bees and, and beneficial wasps and things like that to be available to keep the aphids and things like that down. The wasps are great about keeping the aphid population down, things like that. So you plant something intentionally. If your intention is that it's just beauty, that's fine. That's a fine intention. But you might have the intention of, I'm going to use this piece of ground as restored prairie because this whole system, this broader ecosystem, even if it's beyond my area that I control, needs these plants in it. I would see that as, if it's done intentionally, that that's part of the design. It's very clear that for permaculture, it's going to be sustainable. You're going to consider your inputs. And it's going to be different than just organic gardening. Yes. When I advertise this session, and we're, we're sitting before an audience at the Friends General Conference gathering, I put down the title yeah, at your behest that it's social permaculture. Right. It's beyond organic. It's social permaculture. That social, I think, has multiple levels of meanings. What did you mean when you were giving that to me? So permaculture is based on three ethics. Earth care is the first one. People care is the second one. So David Holmgren defines that as kith and kin. So one of the things about permaculture is that you don't have to set out to save the entire planet, but if you can do something locally with your family and your surrounding area, and so it's a very local thing, a very local idea. And the third one we call fair share, or now some people are beginning to call that future care. So are you taking enough for yourself, for your family, for your community, but are you also sharing those resources with the four-legged creatures and the soil and the rest of the system? So it's based on those three ethics. And then there are 12 design principles that go with those three ethics that guide us in figuring out how to implement the vision that we get So when you're designing for permaculture, the first thing you do is you think about how you want it to be. And then you use the principles to create a system, a plan. The interesting thing about that is that can be done with people. It can be done with plants. It can be done with communities as a whole because it's a way of looking at things as systems rather than individual activities or individual garden, or plant, or whatever. So you're looking at things that have multiple purposes and multiple functions, and then you find things that can work together to serve those functions, and you you begin to put things together that way. So why don't you go through these principles that you're using, and 
so people can get their notebooks out and take notes for this. Of course, on NordenSpiritRadio.org. You can always come to this interview with Carol Barta and review them if you don't care to write anything down, which, of course, will save paper if you don't have to do that. So what are the basic principles then? The first principle is to observe and interact. So before anybody rushes in to figure out what needs to be done, it's important to sit back and observe what's going on. And so if you're doing this for a piece of ground, you're looking at where does the sun come from? Where does the water come from? What are the prevailing winds? If you're doing this with a group of people, you're observing what are the interactions, what are the issues, and you figure out what the problem might be there. The second one is to catch and store energy. And that's really important because energy can be anything from the enthusiasm of a group to storing some rainwater for use later. Obtain a yield is number three. You always want something to come out of it. Number four is probably one of the hardest things that human beings do, and that's apply self-regulation and accept feedback. A lot of times we don't want to hear that feedback, whether it's that the tomato plant is not thriving in the place we put it or that people aren't happy about something. Use and value renewable resources and services because... Renewable is a way to keep things going so that you don't have to continually look for new input. Produce no waste, number six. Design from patterns to details. And this is really a key one. When you're looking at how to begin to work on a system, you need a a broader view. So you're looking at the forest at first before you figure out where the individual trees need to go. So designing from... The pattern, the broader pattern to the individual details is really key. Integrate rather than segregate. So one of the things that permaculturists do is plant things together in guilds. I was having a discussion yesterday with somebody about what we consider the Ur Guild, you know, the one that's been around the longest and and nobody's figured out anything better than, and that's the Three Sisters Garden, which is corn, beans, and rice. And integrating those three crops together produces pretty much an entire balanced diet. And each plant helps the other plant to thrive. Use small and slow solutions is number nine. I would say that here in North America, if we're going to do something like a garden project or we're going to solve a community problem, we try to go out and dig it up all at once and try and (laughs) force it to go our way. And then somewhere along the line, we all run out of energy and we can't sustain it. So it's important to break whatever you're doing up into manageable bits, whether it's putting garden beds in your backyard or whether it's, you know, trying to change something in your community or build relationships with people in a community. You can't ever have a full-blown friendship before you start out with the steps of getting to know. Use and value diversity is number 10. We want to make sure, we were talking about the potatoes, and that's why diversity is so important. Number 11 is use edges and value the marginal. It's really important to look at how two different systems come together. So if you think of where the water in a stream meets the land, you will always notice that there's more going on there than what's going on either in the water itself or farther on. So those areas are very productive and very fertile. 
And so those edges, the margins, frequently are very useful in whatever you're doing. And the 12th one is creatively use and respond to change. Notice it doesn't say adapt. It says respond to change. What's the difference between adapt and respond? Well, you don't have to change yourself. When you're adapting, you change your behavior in accordance to the change. So maybe your response to the change is to go another cycle around and move that further in the direction that you want it to go. Give me a practical example. Oh, that's a tough one. Um, Let me think for a second here. Take two seconds. I've got four or five seconds to spare. (laughs) One of the things that, that you could think about is right now, one of the changes that we're all experiencing are changes in our weather patterns, right? And so a response to the change in the weather patterns could be to plant different varieties of foods rather than just trying to make the same things work. Instead of building a greenhouse so that you can grow the variety that you want, you find a variety that will work with the weather that you've got now. It is one of the things that permaculturists talk about as our climate zones change, looking at what varieties of fruits will work better in your area 20 years from now. You want to plant those trees now. It's not like, okay, if you're going to adapt, you're going to give up that fruit because it doesn't grow there well anymore. No, instead of that, your response is to find, or in some cases it may be to propagate the kinds of fruits. So you might go find a scion from some other tree that works well and put it on yours and see if that'll work. Or maybe up in Wisconsin we'll start growing pineapples, which has never happened, I think. Right. Well, we we have a person uh, who lives not far from where I do who has built some Chinese greenhouses, and he's growing bananas in Kansas, bananas and citrus fruit in his greenhouses along with his tilapia. So he has got a really interesting food system going. It needs lots of energy input, so it's not perfect. But he wanted to have more of those exotic fruits, so that's how he figured out how to do it. Folks, you're listening to Spirit in Action, northernspiritradio.org, with all 14 years of our programs available for listening and download. You'll find links to our guests. When you want to track down Carol Barta, you might want to go to kansaspermaculture.org, and you'll find a fair amount of information not only about her, but about the Kansas Permaculture Institute with which she works. She teaches, and she's co-chair on the board there. Also on our site, you'll find the list of stations across the country who carry Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul. Track them down and make sure you support them because your local community radio station is so valuable. And it's not just radio, but other forms of media as well, local newspapers, etc., are so invaluable because they're not owned by the six corporations that control 90% plus of the media in the United States. It's abhorrent how much that is controlled by just so few hands. You don't get what's not helpful to them. Before we got on the air, I was talking to Carol Barta, and she was mentioning about some of the different agendas that folks bring to consideration of anything. Permaculture has its own importance to the world, but to agricultural community, some of them who are very invested in traditional methods, it's undermining what they have in mind. We can talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But again, 
point is support your local media so that we actually have options and that our ears can hear something other than just the few things that are being propagated by narrow interests. The wider interest that we're concerned with here for Northern Spirit Radio and for Spirit in Action is the good of the whole world, and that's what I think Carol Bartos involved with. You can comment on our programs, and you can rate our interviews if you come to nordenspiritradio.org, and there's also a donate button. That's how this full-time work is supported, not by corporations and not by government, but by you, the listeners. So you can return some of your inputs into the system by helping Northern Spirit Radio grow as well. You can find where to donate or click on the donate button on nordenspiritradio.org. Carol Barta is here with me today. We're sitting down at the Friends General Conference Gathering, which is being held at Grinnell College, Iowa, this year. It moves around each year, and each year I come to this gathering finding people with amazing resources. Carol was speaking in the Quaker Earth Care Witness room, so I invited her here to help get her message out further across the United States. So she just gave us 12 principles of permaculture, how we're going to design a permaculture system. And this, as you were pointing out, Carol, is for agricultural or for food, but it's also for social gatherings, and it's referred to as social permaculture. This may be a detour, but have you started applying the social permaculture to maybe in your school what you want to grow and what systems you want to perceive? Or I don't know if you're actually a school librarian or a public library librarian. I, I'm actually a rural library development person, so I, I work with a lot of libraries in a rural region. About I have a 12-county region that I work with. And can you apply social permaculture to that group? I haven't tried to actively do that at this point. I haven't. I try to wear different hats at different times, but I wanted to say that Northern Spirit Radio is a great example of permaculture because it was a small and slow solution that grew relatively organically, and it addresses people locally where they are. So it's on these community radio stations that probably grew out of some very similar ideas as permaculturists. They wanted something, and we attempted in Manhattan, where I live, to have a community radio station. We didn't make it, but we attempted it. But it was grassroots, and it was driven by a few people who wanted to have something besides either the big NPR stations in in other places or the corporate radio stations, which are in our area all owned by one company, whether you want country music or religious talk radio. It's all one company. And it's that idea of people coming together to make a plan, to have a vision, to make a plan, and try and implement that plan. And that's really what social permaculture is about. So tackling local issues, local problems, in a way that moves through those steps of visioning, planning, and implementing. And if your production of food, vegetables, fruits, whatever, animals for ingestion... Uh, and I'm a vegetarian, so I, I kind of cringe when I say that. But if you want to do that, is this also good for someone who wants to make their living producing food? Yes, we have a number of people that are full-time. For example, we have, I guess it started from Wisconsin, Organic Valley. It's, mm-hmm. Some folks came together and it spread, and now it's very much nationwide. So we have one that, that springs to mind immediately 
is a couple who run a farm. They grow vegetables, and then they process them. They bought a food truck to make a commercial kitchen so that they can process, I think they make a lot of salsas and chutneys and things like that, and then they sell them both to the co-ops in our area and at farmers markets and things like that. But they make their living on their farm with their produce and their products, their value-added products, which is the things that are that are made in their kitchen. And then they allow people to rent their kitchen. If somebody else in their area wants to come and make products, they can because they don't use it 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. So that made a commercial kitchen available to other folks who are part of the network, the permaculture network. So we do have people that are making their living solely on that. Is there any tension or antagonism between the idea of monoculture? You standardize and you get economies of scale. That's what we've been told. The reason you have to grow 50,000 acres of wheat and you have to do it as a monoculture is because it's economies of scale. Is that accurate, or is there something that we're not hearing about that's part of that story? Well, what we're not hearing about is that the way that they're doing that degrades the soil. And so what we've found over the now 65 or so, 70 years, that the so-called green revolution has been in place is that the land has become very depleted because we're just sort of mining the soil for these crops. We're putting fertilizer on them. But we're rolling over them, constantly compacting the soil with those big vehicles and taking those things out. What we're beginning to hear about, which is really exciting, is that farmers are now learning about cover crops. So when they do harvest their large sections of wheat, they're putting something back on their soil so that they're replenishing what's there using specific seeds that will cause the nutrients that they need to come back. And of course, and this has been going on for a while, no-till where they're not plowing up the soil because one of the worst things you can do is to disturb the soil so that the mycelia, those little networks of fungi that are just under the soil, when you disturb them, you lose all the nutrients that they provide, that they bring, and the, and the connections that they bring to get nutrients into the plants. I will say, while commercial agriculture still dominates what we see, we're beginning to see small changes. And I think that that's always the way that these things progress. People are trying small portions of their land with different things. We're beginning to see a number of farmers using rotational grazing, managed grazing, for their herds of cows, and in some cases goats. We're beginning to see that coming in. So people are making these changes, beginning to make these changes. Of course, in Kansas, we have this place called the Land Institute uh, in Salina, where they have been working for the past 40 years to perennialize wheat. And they've got it, and I want to say it's either Minnesota or Wisconsin that's harvesting the most of it and turning it into beer. It's called Kernza, K-E-R-N-Z-A. And it's a perennial wheat crop that they can harvest the grain off of. I think it has a three-year cycle on now, and they're able to do that. They're also working on perennializing uh, grain sorghum in Uganda. And this is all going on in Kansas. This is another group that started about the same time as Mollison and Holmgren started in, in Australia, 
with this idea of perennial crops being the way to go, and they're taking it in a slightly different direction, but still it's really exciting to see. I'm fascinated by this idea of a perennial grain, because I mean, maybe with amaranth I can see that, uh-huh. but much less likely. My, I guess the vision I grew up with, and mind you, my father grew up on a dairy farm. There's lots of fields around there that they were maintaining. You dig it up, you grow it, you cut it off, and then you have to plant it again next year. So are you saying that with this perennial type of wheat that mm-hmm. evidently is good for beer, <laughs> it, that this doesn't need tilling? Is that it, what we're hearing? It doesn't need tilling for a number of years. So you, you've got, and I, and I may have misspoken on the three years, that may be the perennial rice, that you get six harvests in three years out of the perennial rice. But So they're, they're working on perennializing all these different grains in order to allow those root systems. If you look at something from the Land Institute, and I'm, I'm guessing that they're landinstitute.org, you'll see these roots of the perennial grasses, like blue stem, that go down 14, 15, 16 feet into the, into the soil. They grow that deep. And of course, that makes them hugely drought-proof, right? Because they're not getting all their moisture from up top. They can bring up minerals from down below. They can get all kinds of, you know, bringing the water out of the subsoil there. And also, again, they're sequestering carbon back down into the soil by growing those roots that long. It's really a, a wonderful solution for a number of problems that we have in the world. One of them is making sure we can feed everybody so we have these crops that will grow in maybe less than perfect conditions. And grain sorghum in Uganda is one of those that that seems to be particularly drought tolerant. And also, so this is another function. The other function is that those roots pull the carbon out of the air and bring it down into the soil by growing down into the soil so we have less carbon in the air. So that's just another one of those things where we're stacking multiple functions. Part of the imaging that I was having trouble with is normally what I've been used to on the farm that my grandfather had and that my uncle worked after him was you go and you cut off the hay or the wheat or whatever you've been growing. Are you talking about cutting it off in the same way? Can you, or do you have to go through, through with scissors to no, get they, it? they have, and, and I haven't seen the machine. I, I saw a prototype a few years ago, but I don't think it's the one that they're using now. But they're, they're harvesting just the grain heads. So they go along. So it's instead of cutting it off low, which you do with when you harvest wheat, you cut it off like about four or five inches above the ground and just take the whole stalk and everything with it. You're just taking the seed, the seed heads off with this one. It requires somewhat an adjustment to the normal equipment that we have. So it'll take a while to catch on, both because it's taken 40 years to get a, a market size seed out of the, the wheat the iterations that they've had over, you know, they've been doing this. There's no genetic engineering in that. They're not putting, you know, a fish gene in there or something like that. But they're crossbreeding the best of the wheat grasses that they can find with each other and getting it to produce the right size seed. It strikes me that what you're trying to do with permaculture in that case, in the grain, it's rather similar to what happens with housing these days. The mindset in the United States is most typically you come in, you raise the house that's there, 
and you put a, a new one. And I've been looking at that and saying, wow, that's crazy inefficient. Mm -hmm. And maybe it works the same way with these perennial plants. You don't have to rebuild the infrastructure, both the right. roots and the above ground part, if you're just cutting off the heads of the right. grain. Yeah. Are there other plants that they're doing this with? Are well, there... the, the three that I named are the ones that they're working on that I know of, but I, there may be more that I'm just not aware of. It strikes me that fruit, for the most part, is already that way. Yes. And again, I'm not sure I remember what the definition is between a fruit and a grain and so on. You know, I mean, it's it has to do something about the seed and what you eat. I don't know. I, I'm not the biologist. In the, it, so, but you're a librarian. I'm you a can librarian. Look it up. I can look it up. But um, I will say that two of the teachers that I teach with are much more science-based. I'm kind of the humanities-based person in this group. So that's, that's why I get to teach things like ethics and social permaculture. <laughs> But I leave the soil science and, the, and all those things to the scientists. It's not that I can't, but I, it's like I don't have those kinds of things at my fingertips like I do some other things. Well, let's talk about ethics because ethics seems very important. And maybe we've hit part of this when we're, you know, earth care, people care, fair share. There are certainly ethical issues involved in that. Are there more ethical considerations or guidelines that we should be looking well, at? We have kind of, you know, it's, it's not the four-part test, but it's, it's sort of that. So when you're looking at how you're going to do something, you can ask some questions. That's a very Quakerly thing to do, right? Asking some questions. So some of the test questions are, can everyone do the same thing? That's fair share. So when talking about that in terms of organic gardening, it's like not everybody has the money to go out and buy all the organic fertilizers and the organic pest control methods but everybody can make a compost pile. That's something that is done with whatever is to hand. You know. Unless the city where you live prohibits it. Unless the it. city <laughs> prohibits it. But then you're probably not going to get an organic garden going in there anyway. And then the next question is, am I using only as much of this resource as is really required? And that's a fair share question. Am I taking too much of this? If I'm harvesting, so there's the, the great thing about the perennial wheat. You're only harvesting, you're only taking as much as is required, which is the seed heads, rather than going in and taking the entire plant. Can this continue on for seven generations and cause no harm to the natural systems? That's an earth care ethic. Does this regenerate the natural systems or does it degrade them? And so you look at how you balance that. Does this support human needs? That's a people care question. And sometimes I get asked a question about, are we only growing vegetables? And, you know, people need beauty too. So planting beautiful flowers in your garden is fine because it also attracts beneficial insects and keeps the bees happy. And it's beauty for people. <laughs> and is this created in a way that honors people? So you're not doing this in a way that in somehow diminishes the people around you. Those are examples of test questions we might ask ourselves when we're trying to implement something. At the beginning, as you were speaking, Carol, I had the sense that you were thinking of permaculture, and it makes sense to do this. I mean, one of the criteria is people care, right? We're planting, we're managing the environment so that we're producing food or something to our benefit, which essentially means, you know, it's all about us. We're in control. 
Is there any element of I'm going to let go? Or is that antithetical? To no, I think that the fair share piece also extends to the animals around us and not just the domesticated ones. When the deer moved in to eat the rest of the mulberries that were falling from the top of the tree, I didn't do anything to make them go away. Now, I am going to try and control how much they browse off my sweet potato vines because the sweet potatoes won't develop if I browse too much. But they'll get in there a little bit, and I'm not doing a lot to scare them. So you you create an environment where wildlife around you also has the ability to... You know, the bunnies have to eat some things too, and so you can't do them all in. And you need those because the bunnies are a food source for the eagles that live down on our river. And if there there aren't bunnies around, they're going to be eating my chickens. You have to balance the whole ecosystem. So that's why it's a design system and not just about I'm going to use an organic something or other to keep the bunnies out of my garden. There's a certain number of people, Carol, who conceive of the world as being under our dominion. We're in control in that sense. And there's been argument that, like in Genesis, that maybe it should have been more rendered as if we we're stewards, because in other passages it makes clear that, that we're stewards. But even stewards, they're in control. And so uh, is there a term, uh, a proper frame of reference to refer to people in permaculture? Well, I, I don't know that there's a specific term, but we see people as part of the design system, not outside of it, not controlling it necessarily, but a part of it. And that's one of the things that makes the difference between permaculture and, and organic gardening. So this is from Starhawk who is a wonderful permaculturist that many people might know. And she says, permaculture rejects the notion that people are separate from nature and inevitably destructive. The good of the people and the good of the earth go together. And I think that that's really key. We are not separate from this. Very recently, my area has been affected by flooding. So anybody who thinks that humans are in control has totally been not paying attention to what the world is like lately. Because we, we are not in control. <laughs> but we are part of that system. And we can do things that make the system go better. We can do things to make the planet a better place. But ultimately, we are not in control of that. We're not even, I mean, we can be the hands that help in the area where we are. But we're, we're not in control of it. Nobody should think that they are. <laughs> so I, the sense I get is, We're not in control, but we have effects. Yes. I have a feeling if you were speaking to Rush Limbaugh or someone of a similar conservative ilk, mind you, I'm sure Rush Limbaugh has many good ideas as as well as a lot of ideas that don't work for me, but I can just imagine some people taking you strongly to task for the fact that when you're advocating small, slow solutions, You're completely un-American. American American is a can-do society. We get it done. Do you run into strong resistance from people who you're teaching social permaculture to? Sometimes I get pushback, yeah. Not frequently. Generally speaking, the people that select themselves to come to permaculture training are already in the choir. They already have some idea that things aren't working very well as they are now, and and they're looking for a way to make a difference and they're looking for that structure as to how they can help make a difference. Small, slow solutions are a really hard thing, 
especially I would say for Americans. You know, we do want to get it done and we want it to be done specifically in this way. I remember years ago reading about a woman who was having trouble with the EPA because she wanted to plant a rose garden in an area that was a wetlands. And she wanted to put more dirt in there and put her roses on it. Well, a permaculturist would tell her that roses don't like wet feet. And so she might do that, but she wouldn't have a good outcome And, of course, the EPA was telling her that she couldn't fill that in because it was a riparian area. There was a lawsuit. This is probably 25 years ago that I was reading about this. And she didn't win. But that's kind of the, we want to get that done, so we're going to go to these extreme methods to do that, bringing in the dirt and stuff like that, instead of saying, well, maybe the roses would grow really well over in this area and putting them there and putting things that, like a, a rain garden in the area that had all the water. That's kind of the difference there, that we, we need to observe what we have, that's why observe and interact is the first one, and then figure out what will work instead of what we want to force to be there. So it's a little bit different. And I will say that many of us have experienced the need to move plants because we think it's going to go really well in this one area, and it doesn't sometimes, and so you have to figure out where it will go well. We don't always get it right the first time, but if you do that observation, I think one of the people that we cite, Fukuoka, says, long and protracted observation relieves you from long and protracted labor. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that's really a a good thing to remember. Always high in my book, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, How widespread is permaculture now? Do we have any idea if there's how many acres are, how many people, or maybe just locally you can talk about it in Kansas there where Carol Barta lives, but you know, maybe you also know for Wisconsin and Florida. There are permaculture sites, I believe, on every continent except Antarctica. (laughs) It's permanently frozen. Right, (laughs) so it has its own version of permaculture. There are people teaching this curriculum. So the curriculum that we use, and our standards are from the North American standards. There's a specific curriculum. Similar curriculums from Australia and Africa, they're being taught all over the world. The same three ethics, the same 12 design principles, and they're applied the way they work in that particular area. So there are permaculture sites in China that I know about. There are permaculture sites in the Middle East that I've heard about. There's lots of permaculture going on in Africa in different areas. Malawi has created a curriculum to use in their elementary schools to teach children about how to grow food in a permaculture way. So everywhere, there's permaculture everywhere now. It's gone since it started in, in the 70s. It's gone all around the globe. There are Americans who go to Africa and there are Australians who go to Vietnam and you know so it's it's everywhere and Cuba of course is probably the shining star because when their oil collapsed they had to do permaculture for the entire country and so that's how they're feeding themselves 70% of their food is produced by permaculture techniques. Yeah I don't know how many people realize the number of chemicals that go onto our plants which are derived from petroleum. Right. 
I'm curious if you can paint a picture of what a permaculture establishment, a perma, what did you call it, permaculture? A homestead? A permaculture homestead might look like in Kansas or Wisconsin or wherever it seems appropriate. What might it look like? And I'm taking into account the fact that you said you have to define what you want to right. do, what you want to get out. But so I'm just looking for a couple versions. One of the things that you probably will encounter in a permaculture homestead is an orchard or multiple orchards with a variety of fruit and nut trees, because those are kind of basic things. And also brambles, so raspberries, blackberries. And the variety will depend on, some of them are very native, and you can get them to grow practically wild. But So you would have those. And then you would add to that plants that are useful. So there's multiple different types. So one of the things that we look for are what we call dynamic accumulators. Those are the plants with the long tap roots. So horseradish, comfrey, dandelions, because they go down into the soil and they bring up the minerals out of the soil. So you use those. You would plant some of those in various places around your pasture. And when you needed them, you would do what we call chop and drop. So you would chop the leaves off and you would lay them around the base of the trees where the feeder roots are for the trees to get the nutrients out of them. You would have a variety of plants that attract beneficial insects, things like chamomile, dill, things that are nice and smelly and bring beneficial insects in. You might have some other plants that repel certain kinds of insects. Like what? Lemongrass is one that they're using now. Eucalyptus and lemongrass is now the non-DEET insect repellent that they're making a, a lot of. So you can go out into your garden and work and harvest and do whatever you're doing without getting eaten alive. Without getting, Of course, citronella plants are good for that, too. So you would plant those around in various places. You can intersperse your annuals into your perennials. Sometimes I try hiding my squash plants because I, my neighbors across the street are relatively conventional farmers and they have a pumpkin patch. And so when they put their pumpkins in and they spray them the first time for pests, they all, all those squash bugs, they, they pack their suitcases and they come to my house. <laughs> and so I have to find, besides the ducks, a variety of ways. And one of the things is that I sometimes will stick a squash underneath a catmint plant, for example, and try and disguise it from, it hasn't always worked, but sometimes I get a couple of squash out of them before the squash bugs get them all. So you have a variety of plants in a variety of places, but a kitchen garden, which would be part of it, and that's more of something that would be up close to your house, you might have a little bed that has a row of lettuce and maybe some parsley or some other things that are smell good things. And one thing that's very popular with permaculturists is something called an herb spiral. And that's where you put culinary or medicinal herbs in a kind of a spiral rock formation with dirt in it that creates a little bit of a of a microclimate keeps them warm and and also you can grow things later in the in the year are animals always needed i have chickens by the way you know because i do eat eggs i just don't eat animals themselves so there's part of me it's a little bit leery about having animals there because i don't like to be part of killing them but I also recognize that if people didn't keep animals, that almost all of them get killed. I mean, we only let enough deer survive so that we can have a good deer hunt the next year. In my opinion, and I know there are people who are permaculturists who are vegan, but in my opinion, you need everybody. There's a reason that we have all these different species on the planet. 
I know in Kansas, being in the middle of, of the Great Plains, that we've realized that hooved animals have a part to play in keeping the grasses growing strong on the prairie. So the managed rotational grazing now that people are doing mimics nature in that the bison herds would come in and they would eat for a while in one area and then they would move on. I'm not a vegetarian, I have to admit that, but I think that raising the animals when they're part of the system and they're providing not just meat, but other functions in the system, like they're working that grass and they're fertilizing things and you're using other outputs of the animals for the benefit of the whole system, is important. Do I think that the way most Americans get their beef is a good thing? No, I don't. It's not healthy for them. It's not healthy for the planet. But I have seen well-managed, grass-fed places where not only do the cows thrive, but the grass around them thrives, and that ecosystem thrives. And there's good water, and there's growth all around. I know it's an issue. The food issue of Friends Journal was heavily vegetarian-vegan, and that kind of disturbed me a little bit because I think that, you know, if you're living in a city, you're probably only going to be able to get meat. You would have to go really far to try to find something that was grass-fed. I don't have that issue because I'm close to a lot of different producers. Well, it's a good thing that you are. Folks, we've been speaking with Carol Barta. Website, you want to track her and her cohorts down. Go to kansaspermaculture.org to find the website for Kansas Permaculture Institute. Of course, that's where she's living. She's co-chair of the board for that organization and teaches permaculture. She's been teaching in a number of states in the wider orbit. And she taught them, uh, taught to me in Colorado back in 2013 in a workshop I was taking at the Friends General Conference gathering. Carol, thanks for being an energy source for this. I sense that there's deep wisdom embodied in all these principles such that the world can be healthy. The rape, the short-sightedness of our agriculture, the look at only today and not consider what's going to happen next year with erosion or soil depletion or infestations. It strikes me as so lacking in wisdom. I'm glad that you're conveying wisdom and help nurturing the earth and people with social permaculture. One of many people working on this all around the world. So please inform yourself wherever you're listening to this from, over in California or in Massachusetts or down in Houston, Find your permaculture people locally and avail yourself to their wisdom and find how your little plot on the earth can be made a more nourishing place for the entire earth. Thank you so much again, Carol, for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, 